Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello, dear listeners. I'm your host, Naja. And in this podcast, we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. Today's episode is a very, very special one because it is the finally of the first season of Imaginarium. Before we even start talking about today's subject, I just want to talk a bit about Imaginarium's future. First of all, I deeply want to thank everyone who listened to the podcast, everyone who supported me on Patreon or engaged with the podcast in any sort of way, means so much more to me than you think and I'm always so very thankful and grateful for everyone who cares about this little corner of art history and I hope that we can continue to share and talk about art history in every single way possible. After this episode I will take a break for a few months before the next step of Imaginarium starts again, which will involve a very special mini-season that will be dedicated to one specific subject. So it will be a fun opportunity to delve deep into a particular topic. And I hope you will enjoy that mini-season. I know that I have been really enjoying working on it, And so I really hope it will be equally as fun for you. During my break, I will be posting some bonus and extra content on the Patreon. So if you want to take a look, please feel free to do so. In the meantime, we'll turn the calendar all the way back to the 1960s and get into today's episode in which we're going to talk about fashion, beauty, consumerism, capitalism and communism, and the world of visual arts during the 1960s, and the way all of this is tied together. Let's begin, my darlings. First of all, When we think about the visual arts made through the 1960s, what's important to remember is the historical context in which they were made. The 1960s were an odd historical period. I mean, when you think about it, all historical periods have their own oddities and particularities and quirks. But what is very special about the 1960s, though, is its visibly transitional quality. Between the more traditional first half of the century and the seemingly more modern second half of the 20th century. Of course, progress is not linear and history is never as simple as it might seem at first glance. And when you look closer, it's always more complex and intricate and weirder than you might think. But I think we can definitely see a shift that happens in that specific decade 
in several spheres of culture at the same time. But the 1960s, as I said, are still very much a transitional period, a decade of rapid change and progress in a lot of ways, with the sexual liberation, civil rights, and more freedom in general for women. I feel like I really have to asterisk this, even though this is in no way a feminism course. I'm an art historian and there are definitely more knowledgeable people on this topic than I am. But it is important for me to precise that while it was definitely progress in a lot of ways, in the end there is still so much that is left to be done, still today, for real gender equality and general equity and social justice on all spheres of society. <laughs> and there is also intersectionality to consider. When it comes to feminism, the real liberation will be that of all women. Intersectionality is a very important tenet of social justice. It's a way to truly understand how each of us experience privilege in some ways, and also oppression, and unalleged ways racism, ableism, transphobia, and etc. etc. can play a part in every single part of our lives and add to simple misogyny, and understand that white women may experience sexism, but will not experience it the same way a woman of color might, for example, and can still and oftentimes will uphold white privilege and white supremacy. If you are a white woman, are you working to unravel sexism against all women? or only women who look like you, or want to live the way you deem it acceptable. A big part of the 1960s, politically, was a remnant of the 1950s, the Cold War, and all that it entailed. I'm sure you all have an idea of what the Cold War is, but just so we are all on the same page. It refers to the open conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union, which started from the end of the Second World War and until roughly the first half of the 1960s. There was nuclear bombs, the spies, the race to space, as well as the ideological conflict between capitalism and communism. So there was a general feeling of uneasiness while those two superpower nations were waging war covertly and yet very overtly and this deeply influenced the art, the fashion and culture of the era. When it comes to the race to space, for example, it has a definite influence on visual design and aesthetic of the early years of the 1960s, with what we now know as retrofuturism. Of course, back then it was not retro. 
Nay, it was the most current and up-to-date fashion trend. Especially with the race to space that was going on between the USSR and the USA, which was simply a topic that was very much of the time. The dresses got metallic and sparkly, and the aesthetic got futuristic. It was the era of Star Trek and Barbarella and space-inspired outfits. With helmets and adorned in silver, and a very idealized and hopeful vision of the future. I think it is very fascinating how the attitudes in regards to space exploration have changed so much between the 1960s and now. A few weeks ago, a very, very, very rich man spent an enormous amount of money to spend 10 minutes in space and another very 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 rich man is trying to create a hotel on Mars or something I don't quite know and frankly I I would rather not know but I think knowing how that money could solve so many problems that we have now Poverty, climate change, general inequality, all that money spent so that some evil mustache twirling billionaire can spend 10 minutes in space with his minions or whatever. It is very difficult to have a positive attitude toward space exploration. Personally, I admit I just really don't care about it. First of all, if we're going to explore something, I'm very, very curious what we have in the oceans. The oceans are terrifying and unexplored. So there's that. And second of all, I, I think we need to care about the Earth first. We should care about our planet, about this space that we all live in together before trying to go colonize Mars or something. This is so evil and frustrating. Anyway, this was the evils of um, capitalism and billionaires 101. Anyway, this brings us very neatly to our next subject, which um, the rise of the conflict between capitalism and communism made for a rise of the importance of capitalism, especially in the USA, where the government was heavily pushing for their anti-communist and socialist propaganda, and were creating a feeling that if you were not explicitly pro-capitalist and anti-communist, well, you were a very suspicious fellow. There was a whole season in the Film History podcast you must remember this, hosted by Karina Landworth, on the blacklist, which was how members of the film industry during the 1950s and 1960s were blacklisted if they showed any evidence of having communist ideals, even if that wasn't even remotely true. 
anyway, if you want to know more about that, I hugely recommend that season of You Must Remember This and that whole entire podcast in itself. But this political climate made it so that consumption and consumerism were treated as a way to demonstrate patriotism. Also very much no offense, full offense, but American patriotism is so weird and so, so dangerous. There was also a lot of commentary on consumerism, especially within the art movement of pop art, which was very prevalent during the 1960s, and used the iconography of mass media and consumerist capitalism, as well as elements of pop culture such as advertisements, comic books, movies, as well as mundane objects from daily life. I just want to be sure that everyone knows what kind of art is pop art. So just picture that neon colorful portraits of Marilyn Monroe that Andy Warhol made. And this is pop art. In that genre, in this genre, there are elements of the kitsch, of the mundane, and yet made into something more vibrant and special. It's this use of these familiar elements and objects that make it a more accessible art genre to the general public, to the people who do not necessarily have the knowledge or understanding of artistic iconography. And so, by using popular artistic and visual language, pop art becomes a form of art that is for everyone. The art becomes the same as the products of capitalism, mass-produced, colorful, and popular. This is also something that is seen times and times again when it comes to art, popular art, or art that is considered low art, versus the world of fine arts that is considered to be better in terms of intrinsic value. And I have talked about this in an article that I wrote recently, which is that the intrinsic existence of the art canon and the art value is an elitist thing in itself. This art movement critiques consumerism while also being a part of it somehow. Pop art was influenced by advertisements, and then subsequently, advertisements were influenced by pop art. It was a sort of protest against what was considered the elitist and kind of stuffy world of fine art. As I think I might have mentioned this at some point, but this act of going against the establishments and the institutions is oftentimes repeated throughout art history. And even if it doesn't always have a very political and pointed dimension, it is always a witness to the very disruptive dimension of art. It can be possible to see this in the romantics against the movement of classicism, or the movements of arts and crafts against the industrialization 
It's the constant pendulum of art, fashion, and life. So often, there will be a direct and opposite reactionary response to whatever is mainstream, trendy, or accepted as the norm, and the cycle will simply keep on going on and on and on. Pop art is one of the elements that intersects visual arts, graphic design, but also fashion and mass media. These artworks use the very visual tropes of advertising and popular culture, and the space that exists between authenticity and branding, and most importantly, capitalism. Pop art is one of the few movements of, of fine art that really knew commercial success outside of the usual confines of the art world. Because the use of that iconography that was familiar and easy to comprehend, its presence in mass market magazines and its aesthetic being often corrupted by advertisements, really cemented its place in the general consciousness, thus blending the boundaries between high art and low art. When it comes to fashion, the 1960s were very out there. Personally, it's one of my favorite eras of fashion, with the rapidly changing times and the new freedom when it came to fashion. It was amazing. Dresses and skirts got shorter, the colors got brighter. There was a lot more experimentation and funness. The silhouettes got very much simpler, a bit reminiscent of the 1920s Garçon silhouette that is very streamlined and with a very simple cut that puts the emphasis on comfort and practicality. That era is one that really cements the place of the youth in society. There was a new youth culture in a way that there hasn't really ever been before, and thus a new audience that could be advertised to. In the early 1960s, there was still a very much feminine and ladylike style that was very much the continuity of the 1950s. Even though we can retroactively assign very arbitrarily trends in hindsight, the developments of trend movements in fashion, in art, or in anything really, is way less clear-cut than we tend to present it as. Trends and styles overlap. Sometimes people will not move on with the time, and sometimes people will be way too avant-garde. So as I said in the beginning of the 1960s, we have this very ladylike and feminine style of the likes of Jackie O and Audrey Hepburn a style that was a bit more form-fitting and dainty, and yet still very colorful. Jackie Kennedy, to this day, is known for that very iconic pink suit, and I think that this particular outfit still holds a very prominent place in the collective imaginary when it comes to fashion of that period. This is followed by the mud look, with its mini skirts, flat shoes, 
its pastel and vibrant color palette. From 1967 and onwards, though, there is a tendency to go toward earlier tones, in line with the hippie style that was starting to emerge with more subdued tones, but still very much an extravagant style with full-length skirts and dresses, caftans, and a lot of trends that have a vaguely oriental aesthetics. Orientalism strikes once again, especially with the spiritualism and new agey religion of the later part of that decade. The movement of psychedelic design was one that was especially popular within the later years of the 1960s, very much in line with the changing times and the changing priorities for people. The type of art had fluid lines, colorful patterns, and vibrant colors. I love the art of Wes Wilson so much. It's I do think he is one of the representative artists of that specific type of art style. A style that was deeply inspired by Art Nouveau. You can definitely see how it was inspired specifically by the artworks of the Czech artist Alphonse Mucha, especially with the flowing and effortless lines. It was inspired by the old, and yet it was a totally fresh and trendy new movement at the time, and ended up being the basis for a lot of how the templates for posters, advertisements, and graphic design came to be in the last years of the 1960s. During those years, it also brought the rise of activism and anti-war movement. There was also a wave of independence across a lot of colonized countries during that era, an increase in political awareness of justice inequalities, of civil rights, wars, and there seemed to be a very political mindset across people in general, but especially the younger people. When it comes to the West, especially in the United States, there were three major movements going on. The one against the war in Vietnam, the movement for civil rights, as well as feminist movements. And this is specifically in the USA and generally, I guess, in the Western world. And doesn't take into account the various independence and anti-colonialist and anti imperialist movements. During the 1960s, there was definitely a wind of change when it came to politics that was very much leftist and wanting to have a positive social change for all. There was concrete action and solidarity. When it comes to activism and the way it intersects with fashion, for example, while well, fashion can be a form of self-identity and self-belonging, and this is definitely seen when it comes to the way activist and social justice movements came together during that era. Fashion was a unifying force 
in a way, no longer really is when we think of social justice and activism in our current era, where a lot of the good fight is done online because the use of the sartorial can create a sense of identity, community, and selfhood. I know a lot of people think that online activism doesn't really count for much, and while I can definitely understand this mindset to a certain extent, I don't quite agree that much. I definitely see the users of social media to shed light on issues such as the one in Palestine, and as a tool to be able to put pressure on governments and institutions and corporations. I also think about how so much resources and knowledge can be easily found and shared on the internet. While I do agree that it still has a lot of issues and and there's a lot of performativism, and it's still very much good to go out there and do concrete actions, but I think that online activism is still worthwhile, but there is no cool outfit to go with that. Even though I think there is no longer a definite visual aesthetic and fashion style when it comes to activists and social justice nowadays, it was definitely not the case during the 1960s. It is possible to mention the Black Panthers, for example, with their very, very stylish quasi-uniforms, with their black berets and black leather jackets, It is possible to see how much presence and prestance they have simply with these clothes. And when you look at them in, for example, in Adonis Barda's documentary on the Black Panthers, which is available on Criterion Channel at time of recording, they just look very outstanding. The fit is genuinely impeccable, it is stylish, extremely visually striking. But that outfit, that uniform that most of the members of the Black Panthers were wearing, it was a very concrete and visible symbol of their unity and solidarity. Behind their activism and their fight to protest the treatment of black people and the injustices that they were facing. I personally think that wearing certain clothes can definitely be a move of political resistance and defiance, the same way the anti-war activists were wearing a black armband to symbolize mourning and show their opposition to the Vietnam War and the atrocities that the Americans were committing in the name of fighting communism. The same way that there is power in hijabis wearing their headscarves in heavily Islamophobic countries, the same way indigenous people of all kinds wearing the traditional garments is a direct resistance to imperialism and assimilation. Clothing and fashion has a crucial part in our lives and the way we communicate and understand each other, and by such, has an incredible political power. I do think clothing and fashion definitely still has a very political signifiance today, 
I think the issues we're more concerned with are very much tied in the concept of ethical fashion, sustainability, and environmental issues. This affects predominantly women of color in the global south as a way of modern slavery. And this is why we all need to demand better treatment for garment workers. Despite how it means that new clothing will definitely rise in price, but all of us deserve to be paid fairly for our labors, and that includes garment makers. Fashion magazines always have had a prominent place within the world of print since the 19th century, and it is by that medium that beauty standards and fashion trends used to be imposed on the general public, even though this is rapidly changing in light of social media and mass communication, where now the trends and fashionable styles are decided by quote-unquote normal people, whereas the construction of taste and fashion used to be built by the higher classes, the rich people, the magazines and fashion houses, Meanwhile, it nowadays it feels like they're always sort of running around trying to catch up to whatever is the newest trend on social media. It is a fairly new dynamic, so definitely something to keep an eye on. In the 1960s, though, the construction of glamour was still created within the spaces of magazines such as Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. But where the visuals were ultra-feminine and glamorous in the prior decades, even these very uptight institutions opened themselves to the spirit of the times. And the more colorful and lighter aesthetic that was the mainstream fashion of the 1960s. Before we go more into it, I feel like I should say, if it wasn't already obvious, that I'm the kind of person who likes pretty things. I like fashion, I like clothing, and I like beautiful art, whatever that means for me. I love aesthetically pleasing things, but I'm not unaware of the damages of fast fashion, of beauty standards, and all of it. When it comes to beauty specifically, I feel like the words of my lovely friend Saffron who is a beauty critic and connoisseur, are the ones that truly sticks to mind and truly says it all for me. From her article, Unloving Beauty, Words and All. I will link that article in the show notes and her archived blog is truly a wonder for those who love beauty and analysis and history. So quote, Because the truth is, a lot of things about this industry fill me with hatred. I hate predatory plastic surgery clinics. I hate Instagram face. I hate influencers that exploit their followers. I hate that we're marketing beauty products to children. I hate that a skincare routine is considered a necessity. I hate that we shame people for their skin problems. I hate the way models are treated. I hate full feminist advertising. I hate capitalism. 
I hate dishonorable marketing tactics. I hate that beauty has killed. I hate beauty standards. But I love beauty, despite it all. I don't know what that says about me. Unquote. Beauty in the 1960s is bold, colorful, and hugely, hugely dramatic, especially when it came to the eye. The eyeliner was bold and prominent. The use of fake lashes for this very doe-eyed extravagant look. It was a bold time for beauty and the advertisements for beauty products reflected this trend. Yardley London was a company that was founded in 1770 and was a very popular cosmetic brand during the 1960s. With those beautiful and lovely looking advertisements, with the leading starlets of the era, with Jean Shrimpton, Olivia Hussey, or for example Tweedy, advertising the Tweedy lashes, these advertisements had such a distinctive visual identity, with mostly pastel colors used, and it was mainly advertised toward a younger audience of women and teenage girls. The graphic design was definitely inspired from the psychedelic art trend, as well as the various general trends of the era. Of course, these advertisements were a means of, of asserting beauty standards and the ideas of what people should look like, what they should wear, but especially what women should look like. Beauty standards are extremely arbitrary. In the 1960s, it was the extremely thin and lanky silhouette that was fashionable, very akin to the silhouette of the 1920s. Meanwhile, just a few years prior, the hourglass figures of the 1950s bombshell was the desirable silhouette. These advertisements, these magazines, they all perpetuate these unfair standards and shame anyone that doesn't conform to them. No matter when we look at in history, beauty standards were always a thing and it was always mostly unattainable for a large part of society. I think especially so in the 1960s, where a very willowy and skinny silhouette was favored. The role of advertisements in enforcing a certain narrative of what is desirable, especially when it comes to the standards of beauty and, be and body image, and what is considered as being attractive. These ideas of attractiveness are enforcing a very white and Eurocentric idea of what beauty is. For example, advertisements of the 19th century England of a soap that would make you look lighter skinned. And so basically, the beauty standards and its advertising are just another tool of white supremacy and imperialism. It is something that is still going on today, with issues of colorism, issues of racism and anti-blackness, that are still very much a part of how society works. I guess the important thing here is that I really want you to get that all art is political, and 
by this, I don't mean that all art is created with a political intent, but that all art has a political significance and reflects the culture and issues and preoccupations of the era it was created in, and also the way we understand art and fashion retroactively. Everything is shaped by culture and society and politics, and nothing can escape that. It is naive to think that art or fashion or beauty or anything really can escape that. But we were talking about these subjects, that they cannot exist in a vacuum, and everything we create and everything we consume is shaped by all of these factors, by colonialism, by imperialism, by capitalism, by personal biases and racism and sexism. And it does not mean that, that that art has no value. It just means that you always have to be able to understand how certain things were shaped. I have no doubt that future historians and art historians will look onto our current age and see the same biases and forces that are still at play, but in, in a very particular way that is unique to the 2020s. The same way the 1960s was shaped by the Cold War, the fight against imperialism and profound activism for social justice, civil rights, anti-war movements, and yet so much consumerism and materialism. These complexities and constant oppositions and contrasts are always being found time and time again, because history and art history is complex, and even if the study of art, of graphic design, of fashion history, of visual history, can seem frivolous at first glance, they tell a story of who we were and what was important to us and what we now consider important looking back on the past. And I think that is incredibly essential for us to be able to move forward. Before we go, I put a bunch of relevant resources on today's subject in the show notes. As always, all the relevant images will also be on all of our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by yours truly, Neja. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash Neja. I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, maybe. Vilya Sala, Chanika Pechinuyan, Jack, Sam Hurst, Jenny, Jameson Bragg, as well as Natalie. Thank you so much for making the work I do possible. And today's recommendation of the day is the song Sunset People by the lovely Donna Summer. On this Thank you again for listening to me. I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And I hope to see you again very, very soon. Mm -hmm.